Section 24 of the Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 16, Henry I, 1100 to 1135, Part 1. During the reign of Rufus, Henry had lived partly in Normandy, partly in England. In Normandy, he held the castle of Donfranc and the Coutentin, which he had bought from the needy Robert, enjoying here almost independent power over one-third of the duchy, he had spent his time and pleasure with his mistress, Nesta, Princess of South Wales, and in literary pursuits, by which he stands in marked contrast to the rest of his family. Thus occupied, and in occasional visits to England to join in the pleasures of the chase, he had taken little part in the quarrels between his brothers, but waited with well-concealed impatience until the time should come for the fulfillment of his father's prophecy. And now the day had come. He had been hunting in the new forest when his brother was killed. On hearing the news, he rode at once to Winchester to secure the royal treasure and claim the crown, and so opportunely had the death of Rufus happened that some even whispered that the murder had been done at his instigation. Robert, having failed to gain the crown of Jerusalem, was now on his way home, bringing with him his Italian bride, Sibylla of Conversana. A few days more, he would have been again in Normandy to demand the crown by the terms of the Treaty of Caen, 1091. But Robert still was absent. The title to the crown was not yet hereditary. It was held, therefore, that an interregnum ensued upon the death of the king. From the last king's death till the proclamation of the new king's peace, all law was at an end, and none could be punished for their lawless deeds. In the face of the universal hatred which Rufus had inspired, and the many smoldering elements of anarchy which existed, this was a forcible argument in Henry's favor, and his promptitude and energy did the rest. In vain William of Breteuil pressed the claims of Robert in the interest of those Norman nobles, who now as ever wished England and Normandy to be united on account of the personal advantages to be gained thereby. He was overruled. The form of election was gone through by the barons who were on the spot, and Henry hastened to London to secure that important town and to press on his coronation. Conscious of the weakness of his title, Henry shrewdly saw that the crown was to be won and held only by ready conciliation of all classes. Hence he forthwith granted a charter which was the first granted by the Norman kings and was considered so valuable that it formed the basis for the future Magna Carta of the reign of John. Know ye, the charter begins, that by the mercy of God and the common counsel of the barons of the whole realm of England, I have been crowned king. Having thus acknowledged the elective character of his crown, he proceeds to specify the abuses of the late reign and to forbid them for the future. The barons were conciliated by the restriction of the feudal dues and aids. The reliefs are to be moderate. The lord's rights of wardship and marriage are defined. Widows are to be allowed their right of dower. Tenants by night service are freed from all demands except service in the field, and the barons are allowed to bequeath their personal property by will. 
the lower vassals are conciliated by the promise that their overlords shall do the same to them as the king did to the tenants-in-chief. To the people, peace and good coinage are promised. The fines are to be moderated, the arrears of debt due to the crown remitted. The laws of Edward the Confessor, by which is meant the old institutions, shall be re-established with such amendments as had been made by his father, with the consent of his barons. But forests, as they were in the conqueror's time, are retained with the consent of the barons. To the church he promises that he will not keep the property of vacant benefices, and that he will free them from all unjust exactions. Nor was this all. Anselm was immediately recalled. The bishoprics were filled up by good appointments, and the oppressive minister, Ranulf Flambard, to whom much of the misery of the past reign was attributed, was called to account and imprisoned. Finally, Henry's marriage with Matilda, daughter of Malcolm of Scotland, niece of Edgar Atheling, and thus heiress of the Saxon line, was looked upon as a pledge that he meant to rule as an English national king. In these conciliatory measures of Henry I, we see how fortunate it was for England that the crown was not yet hereditary and the value of these early disputed successions. Had the sons of the conqueror succeeded him by strict hereditary right, the crown would have been absolutely despotic. But as it was, each king was forced to lean upon the people, to impose restrictions on his own irresponsibility, and to acknowledge his people's rights and his own duties. The Norman barons, however, resented this English policy. Especially were they indignant at Henry's marriage with Matilda. They called the couple sneeringly Goodrich and Godiva, and assisted by Ronald Flambard, who had escaped from the tower, they invited Robert to claim his own in 1101. The invasion was skillfully managed, and many of the barons, headed by Robert of Belem, Count of Alençon in France, and Earl of Shrewsbury in England, and William of Warren, Earl of Surrey, flocked to his standard when he landed at Portsmouth. But the English stood true to Henry. Among the barons, Robert, Count of Melon, afterwards Earl of Leicester, his brother the Earl of Warwick, and Roger Bygod, supported Henry's cause. Anselm threatened the church's excommunication, and Robert, fearing to try the chance of battle, consented to a peace, by which he once more resigned the crown of England and contented himself with the full possession of Normandy and three thousand marks a year. The quarrel which afterwards ensued between the two brothers was no longer about the crown, but about the power of enforcing obedience on those Norman barons who held property in both countries. In its course, it clearly illustrated the absolute necessity either that Normandy and England should be under the same ruler, or that the Norman barons should choose whether they would be English or Norman subjects and cease to pay a divided allegiance. If every feudal rebel could fall back upon its possessions in Normandy when driven from England and there prepare a new rebellion against the king, there could be no hope for the peace of either country. No sooner, therefore, had Robert retired than Henry turned upon the barons who had defied his authority. William, Count of Morton, who claimed the earldom of Kent as a nephew and heir of Odo of Bayeux, 
and Ivo of Grand-Menil, who had attempted to introduce the right of private war into England, were driven from the realm. Robert of Belem, Earl of Shrewsbury, who had long been one of the most factious of the nobles, held out in his castles of Shrewsbury, Arundel, and Bridgenorth, until Henry marched against him with the whole force of the nation and forced him to fly and retire to Normandy. The joy of the English at the fall of these nobles is seen in the triumph of the chronicler Orderic Vitalis. Rejoice all England and King Henry, and thank the Lord God, for you became a free king on the day when you banished Robert of Belem. To all these exiles, Normandy, under the weak Robert, offered a tempting refuge. Joining with the disaffected nobles there, they reduced the country to a state of utter anarchy. The people filled the churches with their property to save it from the marauding barons. The power of Robert was at an end, and he himself was plundered by his rebellious vassals, so that he often lacked bread to eat and was forced to lie in bed for want of clothes to wear. The cruelties of Robert of Belem surpass belief. He is said to have impaled men and women, and out of wantonness to have plucked out the eyes of a child as he held it at the font. Henry accordingly interfered and complained that his brother had broken his treaty by sheltering the exiles from England. He invaded Normandy in 1104. He was bought off by the cession of the county of Evreux, but two years afterwards, in 1106, he again landed in Normandy to win the Battle of Tangebray, where his brother and William, Count of Morton, fell into his hands. The Count of Morton was blinded, and Robert, sent a prisoner to the castle of Cardiff, spent the rest of his useless, aimless life in honorable captivity. Robert of Belem, who in 1112 fell into Henry's hands, also remained a captive till his death. Thus once more were England and Normandy united. Henry apparently did not assume the title of duke until his brother's death at the age of 80 in 1134. But from the Battle of Tangebray he undertook the government of the duchy. His policy there forms a contrast to that pursued in England. In England, he confiscated the estates of all who rebelled. In Normandy, with a few exceptions, he contented himself with garrisoning their castles, lest, by more extreme measures, he might throw the Norman nobles to the side of his jealous suzerain, the King of France. Thus, when Robert of Belem died, he allowed his son William Talva to succeed to the Norman estates of his father. By these wise measures he reduced the nobles to obedience and the country to peace, and in spite of several wars with the king of France, Normandy enjoyed a security which it had never known under the restless, careless hand of Robert. At this time, Wales demanded the attention of Henry. Constant border warfare had continued there between the Welsh and the lords of the marches, and the Welsh had joined the rebellion of Belem. The means adopted by Henry to increase the English influence in Wales were twofold. First, he attempted to subordinate the Welsh church to Canterbury by pressing his nominees into the seas and forcing them to receive consecration from Canterbury, a policy which was deeply resented by the Bishop of St. David's, who claimed metropolitan authority. Secondly, he established in Pembrokeshire in 1111 a colony of Flemings, 
who at this time were flocking to England, driven from Flanders by one of those inundations of the sea which occurred periodically in their low-lying home. This settlement, near Tenby, did something to introduce the knowledge of the woolen trade and agriculture into Wales, and formed a nucleus of order and advance. But insurrection still continued, and Wales was never quiet until entirely subdued by Edward I. Meanwhile in England, Henry had been engaged in a quarrel with Anselm. Since the reign of William I, a death struggle had been carried on between Pope and Emperor on the question of investitures. The claim to invest the bishops with the ring and crozier, the ecclesiastical symbols of office, had formed a crucial point in the system of Gregory VII. The Church was to be free from the secular power and dependent on the Pope. But how could this be? How could simony be checked, and a recurrence of the shameful abuses of the reign of Rufus prevented, unless the Pope had the undisputed right of thus confirming or annulling elections? This was the papal view, and Anselm, coming fresh from the Council of Rome, where lay investiture had been condemned, refused either to accept the symbols of his office from lay hands, or to pay the homage demanded by the king. When the demand was made, Anselm referred to the canons of the church. Henry answered, What have I to do with a Roman canon? No one shall remain in my land who will not do me homage. Cherishing the customs of his father, he was determined not to abate a jot of his authority over the church. He would exercise that authority more decently than his brother, but that was all. Anselm, true to his papal views, held to his refusal. Unsatisfactory negotiations ensued with Pascal II, who was anxious, if possible, to prevent a quarrel with a new foe until he had humbled the emperor, and Anselm once more went into exile to meet only with lukewarm support from the pope. In 1105, however, Henry, anxious to gain assistance in his Norman war and fearing the threatened excommunication, once more recalled the archbishop, and the following year saw the question settled, as it was sixteen years afterwards between pope and emperor at the Diet of Worms. By this compromise, the pope retained the right of investing with the ring and crozier, while the king was to confer the temporalities of the see and receive the oath of fealty from the bishop. Had the king gained the exclusive right of investiture, the independence of the church would have been endangered. She would have become feudalized and subservient, and thus lost the secret of her moral influence. Had the king surrendered all, the church would have formed a separate power within the realm, owing allegiance to a distant superior, and have gained a freedom dangerous to the state. As it was, Pope and King obtained all they could reasonably desire. The King was secured in his just right as feudal lord. The bishops could not deny their allegiance in temporal concerns, or rebel without breaking their oath of fealty. The Pope could check the growth of simony and enjoy the supremacy over his clergy as head of the Western Church. The Church, connected with the rest of Christendom and the ecclesiastical center at Rome, retained her power and vitality. The quarrel had been useful in other ways. In the resistance of Anselm to Rufus and Henry, we see the first constitutional opposition to the irresponsible power of the king. By it, 
the king was taught that there was a limit to his power, an authority above him with which he must reckon, and the people learnt their right and duty of resisting arbitrary rule. The general ecclesiastical policy of the king was marked by the same spirit of compromise. The pope had long claimed the right of sending legates into the country as his representatives. These legates did not interfere with the ordinary duties of the archbishop, but were invested with the extraordinary powers enjoyed by the pope alone. In virtue of this, they took precedence of the archbishop, superintended the ecclesiastical synods, and administered the more important affairs of the church. This right was not denied, but Henry, conscious that the due independence of the church might thus be encroached upon, insisted that his consent should first be obtained before the legate could land. The synod might be called when the archbishop chose, but the king's sanction must be obtained before they could meet. The chapters were to enjoy the right of election, but the election must be in the king's court and after his congé d'élire. In every point, Henry maintained the principles of his father's customs and asserted his position as ruler of the national church. But within these limits, the freedom of the church and the papal supremacy were allowed, and in the exercise of his control, Henry's conduct was dictated not by caprice, as in the case of William Rufus, but by the dictates of a wise and consistent policy. Anselm did not long survive his return. The rest of his life was devoted to the administration of his see and the enforcement of the celibacy of the clergy. In this, he pursued a more vigorous course than Lanfranc. The married clergy were driven from office, and the act of marriage condemned as absolutely sinful. But the national feeling was always against the papal view. It was constantly evaded, and Anselm's attempt did not meet with complete success. He had been all along striving to establish the system of Hildebrand in England, a system which was distasteful to the English, and therefore he never entirely succeeded. But in the reign of Rufus he had boldly stood forth as the champion of a higher morality against a wicked tyrant, and his opposition to Henry was marked by the same purity and singleness of motive. The ecclesiastical history of the reign is also marked by the foundation of two new sees, those of Ely in 1109 and Carlisle in 1133, and the introduction of the Cistercian Order of Monks into England. This order, founded by an Englishman Stephen Harding at Cito in Burgundy in 1109, devoted themselves to agricultural pursuits, while the earlier orders had betaken themselves chiefly to the towns. The reign of Henry I saw three of their monasteries established in England, those of Waverley in Surrey in 1128, Revo in Northumberland in 1131, and Fountains in Yorkshire in 1132. In England, the Cistercians became great sheep farmers, and many of our most famous houses belonged to the order. No sooner was the question of investiture settled then Henry was called abroad. The possession of Normandy brought Henry into immediate contact with France between 1111 and 1113, where Louis VI was ruling, the first of those great princes to whom is due the ultimate overthrow of feudalism. As a boy, he had been sent to the English court with sealed letters from his stepmother in which Henry was requested to kill him. 
Henry had declined to do so, and thus had a claim to the gratitude of his suzerain. But personal ties gave way to motives of public policy. The power of England threatened France, and Louis returned to the traditional policy of the French king in supporting rebellions against the overgrown power of his vassal. The state of Normandy gave him the opportunity to interfere. The disaffected nobles disliked the firmness of Henry's rule. The doubtful claim of Henry to supremacy over the counties of Vexin, Evreux, and Alençon were fruitful causes of dispute. Folk V of Anjou, ever jealous of the Normand power, again claimed the supremacy of Maine on the death of Elie de la Fleche, who had acknowledged the right of Henry. Baldwin VII of Flanders joined the coalition, and a pretender to the duchy was found in William Clito, son of Robert of Normandy. Success, however, smiled on Henry's arms. The Count of Anjou was bought off by the marriage of his daughter to William, Henry's only son. Robert of Belem fell into Henry's hands, and Louis, defeated by Theobald of Blois in the interests of Henry, submitted to the Treaty of Gisors, by which he abandoned the cause of William Clito and acknowledged Henry's lordship over Brittany, Alençon, and Maine. Henry then strengthened his position by the marriage of his illegitimate daughter to Conan of Brittany and of his legitimate daughter Matilda to the Emperor Henry V, while the acknowledgment of his son William as his heir was wrested from the barons of England and Normandy. War indeed broke out again in 1115, and once more Baldwin of Flanders, Folk of Anjou, and Louis supported the cause of the son of Duke Robert, but Henry was again successful. Baldwin was killed, Folk was again won over, and a skirmish at Brenville, in which Louis was defeated in 1119, brought the Second War to a close. End of Section 24